This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This just in. Breaking news from Stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm here with Big Brother watching you. Because on this day in 1949, the book 1984 was published. You know how sometimes the movie isn't as good as the book? In this case, real life wasn't as good as the book. Today, we welcome a man who's been watching the world change from the highest levels as a White House advisor to four presidents, David Gergen. In our headlines, a weather report? The CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase says there's a hurricane coming. We'll share what he's referring to. Plus, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to Ron with a question about whether you should try goal-based investing or just throw as much money in as you can. And then, because according to 1984, ignorance is strength, I'll swoop in with my trivia. And now, two guys who know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, but investing makes it so much more it's Joe Saul Seahigh, and I screwed it up. <laughs> like the first time I've ever done that. I'll leave that one in. Joe and I screwed that up. Oh, yeah, and OG's here, too. All right, you guys talk now. We'll fix it in post, as they say. Hey, everybody, welcome to another perfectly executed beginning of the Stacky Benjamin Show. I'm Joe Salci. I average Joe money on Twitter, feeling a bajillion percent. And across the card table from me, a guy who's uh, a little far across the card table today because he doesn't want to get what I got, Mr. OG. How are you, man? Uh, yes, although I'm not I'm not as scared of you. I'm not as scared. You can carry on with your life. That is very nice of you. Feeling a little bit under the weather today, but we're going to... Also- Breathe that way. <laughs> Absolutely. But we're going to push through today. We've got a great show for you, one we've been looking forward to for a long time because uh, David Gergen, who served in four White Houses, OG, joins us. And not to talk politics, because this is a guy who's been assailed from the left, assailed from the right, 
because depending on which president he's serving, uh, he always gets it from the other side. We're not going to talk politics at all. We're talking leadership and uh, the need for more leadership and how to be a good leader. So David Gergen coming down to the basement. But first, we've got some fantastic headlines. But even before that, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words... Your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. All right, David Gergen waiting upstairs with mom. So let's get a move on. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. I want to begin with a weather report. Steve, you got any weather report music? Any like exciting, like breaking news music? You see how CNN just finally said that they're going to calm down with the breaking news all the time thing. You know why they're going to calm down? Because we're going to speed it up. Uh, because it causes everyone to panic all the time. And uh, media companies are now finally doing the right thing. I feel like their losses are gained. So we're going to, we're going to make everything breaking news now. Everything's going to be breaking oh. news on the Stacky Benjamin Show. Excellent. Yeah, this is the key to I winning, like right? Isn't that? Haven't we been talking about that the last couple of weeks? It's all about the headline. It's all about the headline. And today we're going to bring you the weather report, some breaking news when it comes to weather. And that is uh, we have a CEO of a major company announcing some, some weather headed for the United States. Says there's a hurricane coming. Oh, gee. That sounds, that sounds pretty bad. But you won't hear that on the Weather Channel. You'll hear it on uh, Forbes, this piece written by Jack Kelly. Jamie Dimon, CEO of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, says there's a hurricane coming our way. One of the most respected Wall Street leaders gave a stern warning to investors, the piece reads. He advised people to prepare for an incoming economic hurricane at an investor conference last Wednesday. So uh, time for us now, OG, I think, to batten down the hatches because the hurricane's on the way. <laughs> Do you think maybe uh, Jamie Dimon's a little upset because the um, compensation committee vetoed his executive comp pay, and so he's going to try to crater the economy? Maybe. His comments, and then he can say, "Look, I was right. I was. I'm worth the money because I can see the future." I am Nostradamus, right? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't, but just three weeks ago when he was uh, using some other sort of weather analogy, it's a EF one tornado 
coming and now it's a Mach three hurricane or whatever the hell they're called. You know, I don't, I don't know. It's uh, rather irritating when, when a uh, uh, public figure, a major CEO pretends like he has some sort of answer that only he has, you know, statistically, and obviously not trying to present the future because we don't have a crystal ball, but statistically it would seem to argue that we're probably closer to the end than the beginning. Don't you think? Well, from a timing standpoint, you know, if you look at the market as a, it goes up and then it goes down and then it goes back up again and you're kind of even money, like where are those two peaks? If you think about it like a, a roller coaster ride, that peak to peak time period is about 30 months on average. And that assumes that we have a bear market and we have, we have, don't even have it yet. We're barely at the average, you know, the minus 14 number, according to the um, uh, averages is kind of sort of a normal year. We're just slightly beyond that. So we're just slightly beyond the average inner year decline. So I don't think anybody has anything to worry about. Pay no attention this, to the man behind the curtain. This piece obviously worries a little more than than you do. And for reasons that we've talked about before, uh, clearly it's always more fun to talk about doom and gloom for these media outlets, by the way, because it gets tons of clicks. But the writer says, this isn't what you want to hear from an experienced, sober, serious-minded executive who's seen his fair share of booms and busts over the many decades working in banking and finance. The causes of concern include the Federal Reserve Bank and the government discontinuing financial stimulus programs started during the pandemic to keep the economy afloat. Instead, the Fed will enact a quantitative tightening program. All of which is already priced into stocks. He wasn't breaking any news there. Yeah. And- if you assume that the that all the stimulus money has already been all consumed or saved, which I think it has been, you're, you've either saved all that money or you've consumed all of that money. Nobody's still sitting, you know, nobody's waiting to spend their stimulus money. You know what I mean? Like you've either decided to use it to purchase stuff or you've decided to invest it. And the fact that that faucet is shutting off or has been shut off, the economy is already correcting for that. That's not, that's not new. A second piece here though, seems to verify what uh, diamonds concerns are. Uh, This is from the wall street journal and is uh, written by Tim Higgins. Elon Musk says Tesla plans to cut 10% of its salary workforce amid concerns about the global economy. He informed workers about his headcount reduction, of course, in another memo last week said uh, report back to work peeps. So we got not just Jamie Dimon talking about hurricane coming. We've got uh, Elon Musk going, you know what? I'm not feeling so good, OG. I wouldn't blame the average investor out there going, I've got these two big names telling me that there's stuff going down the road, coming down the road. One says it in an investor meeting. The other one doesn't say so much as lives what he's talking about by cutting his workforce. What are we to believe? Well, is Tesla a proxy for the U.S. economy? I mean, they have yet to be profitable, right? So, or barely are. I certainly don't think that they've made any money selling cars yet. It's not on their cars. They're profitable, but not on their cars. And there's two angles to Musk's statement. It's funny you you bring him up because I was going to say when we were talking about Diamond that I've always viewed Jamie Diamond as as sort of the Elon Musk of the financial industry. He's sort of makes the big splash with a lot of big statements. He's been doing that as long as I've known him. It's the only reason I know him. I couldn't tell you who the CEOs are of a lot of the other firms because they're not as mouthy as Jamie Dimon is. 
And now here we are talking about Elon Musk and the other angle on his wasn't just, I mean, some people viewed that statement that he wanted to pull everybody back into the office. You were not going to be allowed to work remotely. Some people view that as really just a ploy to try to weed out his workforce. Uh, He wanted people to resign because he was looking to reduce the workforce by 10%. But his overt statements out loud and other people really agreed with this is it is tough. If you're a product-based company, especially a retail product-based company, it is difficult to, to create new products remotely when you're not together. I mean, there is a lot of value to people being together in the same room, creating products. And he didn't wait long enough. If his goal was, Hey, I'm worried about the economy. I think it's dropping. And so I need to reduce my workforce. If he was trying to do that by forcing people to, to resign because they didn't want to come back into the office, you don't make that statement and then cut your workforce three days later. You make that statement and you wait about six months for people to find new jobs. So I'm not sure if that's really what he was going after was an economic-based decision. You know, though, if I'm an investor, does it matter to me if he means it to be an economic statement or not? Like if I see these people, I mean, my job isn't to have people spoon feed me with coming up. My job is to kind of parse the tea leaves. And so if I look at these two people and they agree, even though they may be talking about slightly different things, I think it points to two people that think the economy might not be going the way that we think it's going to be going. Okay. So what? All the other economic data does not support anything that either of these two people are talking about. Unemployment, super low. Interest rates, while they're higher, are still relatively low in the grand scheme of things. Um, Wages are rising. People are paying off debt house prices are still going up. There's nothing that says that the economy as a whole is in this recession, you know, that it's even headed toward it. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen. But the other part of that is who cares? What does that have to do with anything from an investing standpoint or yeah. a financial planning standpoint? That's what I thought you were going to say when you said who cares. It was like we don't care, right? We, we're not investing on boom or bust. We have a plan and we're just trudging on. Yeah. Use a different, a different, uh, we're, uh, we're marching on regardless. Marching on. There we Pressing go. on regardless. Sounds great. Trudging on sounds like oh, I'm just trudging. Ugh, slogging through the mud. I think there is a way I agree, obviously OG with what you're saying, but I also think there is some, uh, truth. And I think it's wise to be wary. I think being wary at all times when the market's up, when the market's down is a fine emotion to have when it comes to your portfolio. And I think that uh, thinking that there may be a hurricane coming leads you to preparedness, right? I mean, in the fall, we always have uh, Steve from uh, UL Labs on talking about your family's fire plan and what your what everybody should do. I think having an order of operations for the next time this happens, whether we're coming out of it or this goes deeper, I think is a is a great thing to have. So while I agree with you on looking at these with some degree of skepticism and saying, what does it mean to me? I think what it would mean to me, if I read Jamin Diamond says there's a hurricane coming, my response should not be, oh my God, there's a hurricane coming. Let's all sell everything. It's what is my hurricane preparedness strategy? Okay. I can get behind that. So then regardless of what anybody says predicting the future, I don't have to worry about it. I'm like, you know what? I am future-proofed. My portfolio is going to do nothing no matter what. 
I'm going to make sure because I leave all my money under my mattress. So no matter what happens, jam it in there. Yes. Not a good strategy, people. Actually, the worst strategy. But I think having that investment policy statement is a key when you're reading this stuff. Oh, and looky here. Looks like uh, Morning Brew is pretty quick to uh, copy our stuff. What are you talking um, about? Well, it's an article right here about uh, Jamie Dimon and Elon Musk and how they're both uh, crying about the economy. And uh, it says, but these doomsday predictions have yet to show up in the data. They say it's so much more succinct than I do. <laughs> That's a shot. God darn it. That's funny. I'm just, I'm opening this now. Uh, who's right about the recession? CEOs of the data. Yeah. Who's right? Is the uh, data how funny right? is that? Yeah. Good stuff. I don't actually, I mean... To pat you on the back, even though you didn't say it as succinctly, you kind of nailed it, OG. Thank you. I mean, they like listened and then they quickly sent this this email, this daily email out because they just kind of took what you said and, and used fewer words. Paraphrased it. Coming up next is a gentleman who really for many people needs no introduction because he's devoted more than half a century to public service. David Gergen came off a stint in the Navy. We'll ask him about leadership and his time in the Navy. He served as a White House advisor to four U.S. presidents and different than most advisors. He has served members of both political parties, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton. We'll ask him about some of those presidents and those leadership figures. He, of course, has been a political commentator just about everywhere that you look. And Doug, you've been going through old episodes of the West Wing and noticed that he even was an advisor to making that iconic series. Yeah, he shows up all the time in the credits of the West Wing. So David Gergen talking, not politics, talking leadership coming up next. But before that, I think, Doug, we're going to talk about uh, the future that never was, maybe. That's right, Joe. I love that we're talking about the anniversary of the book, 1984. Ah, 1984, my mullet swaying in the wind, neon green fanny pack strapped on tight as I cruised to the mall in my Pontiac Firebird. That was such a bitchin' car. My girlfriend's shoulder pads bouncing up and down as she sings along to Wind Doves Cry. Ah, the memories. But you know, it wasn't all good that year. I mean, not as bad as the book made it sound. That, that year, an antitrust suit broke up one of America's biggest companies into seven different ones. So which company was it? I'll be back with the answer after I rewind this Madonna cassette. Well, the home buying process couldn't be any more convoluted, uh, uh, could it, Doug? You had quite an experience when you were buying your first tent. No, it was a great experience buying my first tent. Yeah, they offered me financing right there at the store, made it super easy. So I always take that. Whenever they offer you financing at the store, you're not going to do any better than that. I mean, they... They are incentivized to make it the best financing you can get right at the store. So I just grabbed it, signed all whatever paper they put in front of me, and I was out the door. It was great. You wonder how OG he sat here for 10 years and has still not heard an episode of our show. It just is amazing to me. Well, I've got these but earplugs in. When it, when it comes to your home buying experience, OG, a little different story. Usually a gigantic pain in the butt. Just drives you crazy. Well, guess who can make it much, much easier? Navy Federal Credit Union can. They're here to help military members and their families tackle homeownership. They offer mortgage options with zero down payments, so you don't need to wait years to save. They offer mortgage options that don't require a private mortgage insurance. 
so you'll save money each month. Members can save $2,500 on average when they choose Navy Federal for their mortgage. With resources like Realty Plus, you can get an experienced real estate agent. They're a top VA home lender. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. Insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Well, you know what I think about Navy Federal? I think about the veterans that have done so much for our country. And I also think about some of our active service members. want to say a special shout out to uh, my nephews, Colin and Nathan, who are both in the Navy. Colin is stationed outside Seattle, Washington on a submarine. And my nephew, Nathan, is in South Africa as an air traffic controller. And in Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants you also to celebrate members, many of whom go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. It's all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their family are eligible for Navy Federal membership. They offer 24-7 help from their U.S.-based member service. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equalizing Lender. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's totally gnarly neighbor, Doug. And which company in 1984 was split into seven parts? The company in question dated all the way back to 1885 and was broken up into pieces that had, according to Investopedia, mostly remerged by 2018, like the bad Terminator in Joe's mom's favorite film of all time, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, of course. The firm had warded off suits with the U.S. government in 1913 and 1956, but finally had to break up in that storied year, 1984. So which company was it? American Telephone and Telegraph, AT&T. And now to help you keep it together as a leader, David Gergen. And David Gergen joins us. Thank you so much for coming down to the basement to talk leadership with us, David. I'm, uh, I'm, it, we will have a conversation. I'll be exalted <laughs> out, of the, out of the basement into the airwaves. Hey, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Amen. Thank you very much. I want to begin here because you immediately in your book, you don't talk to people in older age groups. You go right for young people in the introduction yeah. to your book. Why do you focus so much on young people immediately yeah. when it comes to this idea of leadership? Uh, because I think there are great hope for the future. I think anybody who looks at the American landscape, the public landscape today is, is horrified by what they see and where we've gotten ourselves. Uh, and as much as I would like to say that the baby boomers are going to solve all this, the truth is there are many very fine people who are baby boomers, who I think the generation we call baby boomers overall has been a disappointment. And I don't think this current generation who's in power is capable of overcoming the kind of crises that we've been seeing. If anything, you know, life is getting tougher. The cascade of crises that have hit us, we simply have been unable to you know, resolve any one of them. And increasingly, I've come with you. Turns that the next few years are likely to be very rough. But over the but if you look out over the horizon, I think there are glimmers of hope over the long term. It's why I consider myself a short-term pessimist, but a long-term optimist. And the optimism comes from the quality of young people that I think are coming through the system who represent new hope and they represent new fresh blood 
and fresh vision. That's that's what America has traditionally done in times of great stress and adversity. We've turned to new people, and it's made a big difference. You talk about your time growing up and kind of struggling with leadership yourself, David, about really trying to find what you call your true north. Well, I did, and I also just sort of trying to find what I wanted to do in life. One of my discoveries growing up was it's much easier to find out what you don't want to do than it is to find out and figure out what you do want to do. Like whittling it down, right? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And, you you know, I went through several iterations of, yeah, I thought I was going to be a professional uh, baseball player. Uh, I was a fairly decent pitcher and uh, when I was young, but then around 15, 16, 17, I sprouted up. I gained six inches in like six wow. months or something like that. It was, it was amazing. But I lost my coordination. And so uh, I tried out for the high school baseball team. And uh, first day of tryouts, we had to do it in the gym because it was raining. And, and I had my catcher there with me. And uh, I threw about three or four pitches, and they went pretty well. And then I threw the next pitch, and it went wild. I just completely lost control of the pitch. The ball went through a window. <laughs> ball went through a window, but that's not the worst of it. The window was on the second floor. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been- I knew there instantaneously, I have no future as a pitcher. It might have been just a touch high. Is that what you're trying to say? Just a touch? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I went on for things like, uh, you know, I went to law school and then to, uh, I went and spent some time on law firms in uh, Manhattan. And I discovered, I don't want to do this. It didn't sing to me. It just, it was a money-making machine, but I, I wasn't into money at the time. And, you know, I didn't decide against it. And then I went in the Navy and I said, I don't think so. So I banged around a little bit in the beginning. But what did the Navy teach you about leadership? Well, the Navy was one of the best uh, experiences I've ever had on leadership development. I'm grateful that I served in a uniform for a couple of years. It's not that I was in all that much danger. I, I was on a ship that was homeported in uh, Asia and Japan. And our ship went to Vietnam and went to the Philippines and uh, Taiwan. But what I liked about the military was that I had gone to a couple of elite schools for undergraduate work and then for law school. I suddenly was thrown out of that within days after I left law school and with honors. I was given a toothbrush and I was cleaning latrines in, in the Navy. And I was down on my hands and knees cleaning the damn latrine. Uh, and that, that sort of humbles you pretty quickly. What I enjoyed about the Navy so much was I was given a responsibility for about 50 young men. The Navy in those days was still didn't have the women. But I had direct responsibility. Most of these kids, most of these young people had financial problems back home. That They might have a girlfriend problem back home. They had other issues that were colliding. They had, you know, they drank too much alcohol, that sort of thing. But I, as someone who was responsible for them, I learned to live with them and treasure their presence. And I found that... Um, you know, they had a lot more discipline than I did. They were devoted to a cause. They really were more professional than I was. They, they were the enlisted, but they were more professional. And I really came to respect that and uh, have a view that leadership and good works can come from people who didn't go to a fancy school, uh, who, you know, are down in the ranks. And, you know, the day will come when you're called on. If you're ready, if you're up to it, you can make a real difference in life by taking over a leadership position. And it doesn't have to be in a place like the White House. It doesn't have to be some glory place. It has to be a place where you can be serious and and make a difference. But you see so many people today, David, they see what's going on in Washington and they go, leadership, I want nothing to do with it. Yeah, I agree. 
when I was growing up, people wanted their kids to grow up to be president. Today, they don't want them to be president. It's just too much of a mess. It's too hard. You get kicked around. Uh, you lose the self-respect, that sort of thing. And we do have a nation now that is pretty exhausted, uh, emotionally spent, discouraged, looks at sort of their cascade of crises that we have and says, you know, how can we solve any of this? You know, we've jumped from one crisis to the next and never seem to get things put firmly behind us. The pandemic is still with us. Inflation is still with us. You know, the, the school shootings are still with us. And you go through a long litany of things that have been frustrating for so many Americans. And there's, there's sort of a loss of hope. And I think we have to restore that. I think the job of leadership now is to bring fresh energy and fresh vision to what our communities can be, uh, how where we can make progress. And we've made some progress in recent years that we don't talk about very much. And we've made great progress, for example, on gay rights very quickly. You know, the, we, gay rights was sort of a stigma up there for a while. It's completely reversed. And so we shouldn't give up hope. We've got a lot of problems that are building up uh, and a lot of dangers, frankly. But let's not give up hope. If we give up hope, we're going to be lost. You point to some early leaders to give uh, new leaders a place to start. You yes. talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You talk about John McCain. Uh, you talk about John Lewis. Tell me about some of the lessons that new leaders can learn from people like those three. Well, the three, uh, their intent chose not to show that, you know, uh, leadership comes from across the board. It's not the province of any one group. White males used to be the lead the country. That has completely changed and for the better. That we now have women in very, very large numbers who are coming into leadership position and doing very well. And, and frankly, we have people of color. I, I recently participated in, in a conversation with uh, Ken Chenault and Ken Frazier, two African-Americans, two CEOs of major, major companies. I used to work for American Express and did PR. Oh, you did. And Ken Chenault yes. was an amazing leader. Just an incredible. Yeah, they were both great leaders. And it was just such a pleasure to hear people who were analytic and patriotic and caring about the country. And yet you knew had encountered white their supremacy in the past. They'd, they'd endured, you know, various humiliating moments in their lives. And they came through it. They came through and they were stronger for it. And I, I have great respect for people like that. If I'm a young leader and I'm looking at not just those three, but I'm looking at getting into leadership, where, yes. where do I really begin? Where do I, do I find mentors? Do I, do I go to Harvard and join your curriculum there? What do I, where do I start off? Oh, I think very, it's very, very important early on to begin paying your dues. We are privileged to live in the country we live in. 99% of the world looks at us and still is in awe of what we've accomplished over the past and they worry about our future. I think it's really important that we begin asking young people to do some service early in their communities, to get involved, to work with the homeless. That's something young people can do very, very well. To work, uh, say, with first responders uh, to climate problems. When Hurricane Sandy came along, for example, young people went out there and, and really worked and set an example that has been followed in years since. And these big storms come there frequently, uh, positions that, that young people can play in doing it. So. My, my argument is start early, get in the arena early, then begin to look for places where you can, can in fact, make a difference in your community. Work your way up in your community. After you've spent time in community, in your hometown, in your home district, in your home rural area, your home farming area, uh, after you've done that, then you can begin to uh, volunteer for political campaigns or 
You can do other kinds of things in your in your community. You can go to college. There are ways you can sign up for things. And over time, give yourself time. Don't feel you got to run for Congress for, you know, demons after you leave college. Uh, <laughs> I think this thing about paying dues is really, really important. I, I know a young man named Eric Lesser who came out of Harvard, and he was a you know, first-class young man. I first met him when he was a sidekick to David Axelrod, the political analyst. Yeah. And Eric was a, sort of you know, the guardian at the gate, the guardian at his door. And Eric, when he came out, could have had almost any job anywhere. He decided to go to Worcester, Massachusetts, and run for the state legislature. Uh, and he ran, ran as a state representative. Not pretty many people marveled out and do that kind of thing. But he has excelled at it. He's done it now for several years. And he's now running for lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. He's got a good shot at it. And because people have a lot of respect for Eric. He's a straight shooter. But he put in his time. He really served his district well, and, and that was that was the mark of a good leader. Another mark of a good leader that you talk about is trying to bring people together. And as a guy yes. who served two Republican presidents and one one three. Democratic president, well, excuse me, three Republican yes. presidents and one Democratic. I can show president. you the scars. I can show you the scars. <laughs> I, I don't know how I got that wrong, by the way. Well, and it's funny. Following- most, people, most people think I got it wrong. Like you. <laughs> What, what, that's what I was going to say was during your career, look at how red I'm turning. During your career, yeah. I remember you getting all kinds of jabs from the left oh, initially yeah. and then now yeah. jabs from the right. Yeah. So being a moderate, I think, is difficult. But on that point, you started in early age trying to bring people together. You tell this story about you went to a KKK rally to try to bring people yeah. together. What's going on there? Well, it's an honor, a privilege for any American to work in the White House. So, and I've been there several times, so I'm, I'm quite blessed in life. But if you want to know what gave me the most fulfillment in public life, it was not in the White House. Yeah, it was back in my home state of North Carolina. I grew up in the South. Yeah, I went to segregated schools. Schools are still segregated. I lived on a dirt road there. So we didn't have much, but I had a great family. My dad was a mathematician and uh, was a chairman of the math department at Duke for a long time. But, but anyway, growing up in the South, when I learned I wasn't going to be a pitcher anymore and I got into, I got into journalism. Eventually I got into uh, the public arena. We had a governor named Terry Sanford who was elected in 1960. He was our John Kennedy, very charismatic guy, former Marine who had parachuted into the battle of the bulge. Uh, so he, he paid his dues certainly, but it was the early days in the civil rights movement. Um, and in 1963, I went to work for Terry's, the, the guy he appointed to run something called the North Carolina Good Neighbor Council. And I, I drove him all around the state. I was a research assistant. I was a communications director. I was his driver because it was a small little place, small little, you're little like group. A, you're like a Swiss army knife. <laughs> so in the event, I found that very, very fulfilling because you could see the progress going from town to town, bringing black leadership together with white leadership, working on jobs, working on education, and very importantly, trying to keep the peace. You know, back in the 60s, was when Schwerner and Cheney, those, those three guys had murdered in, in Mississippi. Uh, and so we were very much on, on the knife edge in other parts of the South, like North Carolina. So in any event, to go to you, the point you were just raising, one experience I had was that the KKK, which was very strong in our state, was putting on a, a major rally in the southwestern corner of the state. And I and three buddies, one of whom was a high school friend who was uh, an associate pastor that summer uh, in a black church. Uh, he brought a tape recorder with him 
that we could go to this Klan rally and he could tape record it and I could see who was behind it in the sheets. And I would be more effective working on, on race relations if I understood the KKK a little better who they were. So anyway, we had a group of four of us who drove together down to the rally. And just outside, there were a ton of cops around. But as soon as we got inside the gates, the cops disappeared. Oh. And the order was being kept by a bunch of bully boys in brown uniform, essentially. Big husky guys, uh, scary looking guys. And I realized right then, this is going to be a, could be a tough evening. They surrounded us in the early part of the, of the rally. They stole the guy's tape recorder. They yelled at us and screamed at us. But they left us, basically left us alone. Yeah, but when we went to our car uh, to leave, it was out in the field. There were about 300 people surrounding our car. They were yelling and screaming at us and banging on us. So we were able to get inside the car. Uh, and then they were jumping on the roof. And they were basically telling us, we're going to make sure you never come again again. You'll never step foot in another clan rally. You thought you they, were yeah, done. Said, I thought we were done. And I told her, told my friend who was driving, I was riding shotgun. I said, listen, just get the key out. Put the key in the ignition. Let's get the car started so we have some control here. But then let's gently move the car forward. We don't want to run over anybody. We don't want to hurt anybody. But we need to get the hell out of here. Otherwise, we may not make it ourselves. And we did, that's what we did. We gradually got toward the gate. But then the people who were surrounding us went and jumped in their cars. And we, when we went on the highway, they chased us in the, you know, the dark of the night. And again, I thought, we're, we're going to get really banged up here. Well, I, I decided when it was over, we, we, did, we escaped. And fortunately, you know, life went on. But I decided, you know, I bear some responsibility for that. We, we treated people at the KKK like animals in a zoo. And we went off and wanted to look at them as, and see how strange they were. Uh, and we were, that was a reckless thing to do. Uh, and we put ourselves at risk, but more importantly, we stirred them up. It was like waving a red flag in front of the bull, and they came charging at us. Is that the problem today, David? Not to cut you up, but is that yeah. the problem to, in today's sure. environment that we do that to each other? We look at the other side as if yes. we're animals yes. in the zoo, and we bait each yeah. other. Yeah. You know, the truth is, it would be healthy for a, a lot of our current students to go into the Bronx, and go into Harlem, and see what life is like. With a 20-minute subway ride in New York, you go from the richest district in the country to the poorest district in the country. And, you know, if we only live in among the rich or the well-to-do or the affluent, we're not going to understand why there's so much suffering and why people are so frustrated. So it's really, really important, I think, to listen to the voices and, and try to understand the experiences of those who have been less fortunate and don't have an equal shot and are going through a lot of suffering in life. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about some of your time in the White House, because I have sure. to imagine there were just some amazing discussions you were part of, but also sometimes that uh, that might have had you wondering if this was really the right place for David Gergen. You had told me a story at one point, David, about a dry erase marker and how that dry erase marker may have changed the scope of your career. It didn't end up changing the scope of your career, <laughs> but it might have. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could, read, if you could tell our listeners. Sure, 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 because- sure. Well, I am a big believer in the power of humor. I think that we get through a lot of life. Yes, you know, Lincoln said, if you don't laugh, you can only cry. And laughter helps, I think, is so important for leadership. People don't recognize, you know, that someone who's comfortable enough, to, especially to tell self-deprecating stories, is pretty well anchored as a person, as a human being. And if you're so uptight, you can't laugh at yourself. You know, you better find a different line of work uh, than trying to be a public leader. So anyway, early in the Reagan presidency, 
he decided he wanted to give a uh, fireside talk, in effect, uh, an, evening, an evening speech to the country about his economic plan and what he hoped to do. And, you know, having a president come on and talk about the deficits is, is about the, the most boring thing you can put on television, right? <laughs> so uh, with the question, in my mind, I was a communications guy, was how do we make this interesting? At that time, we didn't have social media. We didn't have all the kind of uh, gimcracks that you have to communicate. Uh, we had something very simple. So I said, Mr. President, I'd like to get an easel and put it behind you, sir, while you're in, you know, when you're giving your speech. And midway through your speech, what we'd like you to do is to get up, leave your chair, keep reading the, the teleprompter, but go over to the easel, pick up the red felt-tip pen, and draw a line showing what will happen to the national deficits if, in fact, we don't embrace your program. Here's the danger we face. Would you do that? And he said, yes, I'll be happy to do that. And I said, well, sir, it was a nine o'clock speech and, you know, you're very experienced at these things, but can you come over a little early so we can rehearse? Because you have to, you know, you have to be reading the teleprompter, you got to get up from your chair, et cetera. And he said, no, no, I'll be happy to do it, David. And so about 20 minutes to nine, he comes over and we sit him down. We have a rehearsal and he gets up, draws a line, everything is flawless. Nine o'clock comes, we got 70 million people out there tuned in. And he comes to that part of the speech where he gets up, goes over, and we had forgotten to do one thing. We'd forgotten to put the cap back on the red felt-tip pen that he was going to use to draw that darn line. And so he said, here's what's going to happen to the deficits. And he took this pen and drew it across the chart, and all you got was a screech. We had no line. It's 70 million people <laughs> I, watching him do something. you watching this thing. And I was, I was standing about 35 feet away behind the cameraman, the TV cameraman, I was updating my resume. And, uh, <laughs> so, so I had an assistant, at a TV guy named Mark Good, who had more foresight than I did. He brought a second red felt tip pen. So as soon as this happened, Reagan was standing up there sort of helplessly. Mark hits the floor, crawls across the Oval Office. Signatures is in there, and they're looking at him and looking at us and start. What the hell? We, it's not in the playbook. The you know, White House <laughs> staff member attacks prison. So they, and, and Reagan was looking over, you know, looking around and saying, who's this jackass crawling across my floor? <laughs> so Mark crawls up to the desk, crawls behind the desk, gets up to Reagan's pant leg, holds up a second red felt tip pen. And Reagan gets this little twinkle in his eye and looks, grabs a pen looks into the camera and says, I think I'll try my pen again. And they, they drew a beautiful line. And I, we were thinking to ourselves, if that had been Nixon, who was a very uptight guy, and it really couldn't, his fingers weren't good in dialing on dial phone. You, you can imagine how it had been in the, the, the age we live in now with everything. Um, but if Nixon had been president, the speech would have been called off. We would have been thrown out on our butts in the Rose Garden, and the bombers would have been over Vietnam in the morning. It was, <laughs> there were a lot of moments like that, and especially in the Reagan White House. It was a People who love to sort of poke fun at each other. I'll tell you one more quick story, if you don't mind. There was a rule in the White House, it's every White House, that if somebody sends you a gift from the outside, you know, unsolicited, you don't know this person, they send you something, you've got to mark it down in your, your notebook that they, you received it, and then you got to ship it out. So it doesn't stay in your office, and you don't accept whiskey from people, you don't accept other things from people. So one day, Mike Beaver and I were standing around with this great big portrait arrived at Jim Baker's office. Jim Baker was the chief of staff. The portrait must have been like three feet tall and two feet, three feet wide. It was big. When Deaver and I got this thing, we said, let's grab this thing. We're going to be able to use it somewhere. We don't know where. Let's grab it. So we went and put it in my closet. 
<laughs> and Baker never saw it. He had no idea that painting had ever arrived. So the day came when Reagan had his birthday and was going to fly off to Camp David for the weekend with Nancy. And we, he met down, met about three of us down in the, in the uh, diplomatic room just before he went to the helicopter to have a little chat before he left for the weekend. So, you know, he, had, he could size up and be briefed on the weekend. And Deaver was there. I was there. Baker was there. And Deaver and I had this painting mill wrapped up in birthday paper. So we had this birthday thing sitting there. And Reagan was looking at it. Well, yeah, what is this? And we said, Mr. President, we came a little late because we had to get this. Jim wanted to make sure you got this present <laughs> before, before you but yeah, man, We wanted to make sure he got this before before he went off to Camp David. And he, said, he took it and they said, oh, thank you, Jim. I really appreciate it. Should I open it? Baker didn't know what the hell's going on. He's really puzzled. He said, I guess so. It opened it. Bring it up. It's up. The gift from his chief of staff is a portrait of his chief. Uh, it's a picture of him. <laughs> yeah, a great picture of his chief of staff. <laughs> Baker went nuts. <laughs> I can imagine Reagan just that look that he'd always get in his eye, and that must have been just. Oh, a yeah, exactly. Great oh, look. He, he laughed. But how'd you live it down with Jim Baker? Because what a great chief of staff. He seemed like from the outside, just a wonderful person, he's a super, great leader. He's a super guy. I'm so proud that I had an opportunity, privilege that I had an opportunity to work under his mastery because he was best chief of staff, I think, in the history of the country. I want to end on on this note. And by the way, even before I say that, uh, just a, a fantastic read, David. Uh, Thank you. I absolutely, 100% enjoyed every minute of reading Hearts Touch with Fire. It was, uh, yeah, just between the stories and the the huge amount of leadership made me realize that we just have, we have a long way to go, but there is so much promise out there right now. Yes, I was absolutely. Super- absolutely. And there's so many young people who are starting to make a difference. You know, I've come to the conclusion it's time for us, those of us who are, you know, getting along in years to step back some, uh, try to help the next generation, but we need to pass the torch to the next generation. And I think that they're a very promising generation. They're not perfect, to be sure. But they remind me so much of the people I found in Washington when I first got there. The World War, the World War II generation was there. And it, they were they were just so good. It was a terrific generation to work for. And I learned at their feet so often. So I And I think it's now time to, I'd like the book is intended as part of a legacy to sort of say, here's what I learned. You want to hear a number of voices about how you can make a difference, but here's one one voice that I hope you'll pay attention to, and you know, but but look for others because nobody has a monopoly on wisdom. I want to end on this question, on a current events question. I'm wondering sure. how how you would advise a president to think about this issue because you talked about so many things right now they're dividing us sure. but as you and i record this just about a week before this is going to be live the biden administration's approved a 5.8 billion dollar automatic student loan cancellation which is the largest in history according to them yeah. uh, 560,000 federal student loan borrowers who attended corinthian colleges one of these for-profit schools that made a lot of claims and ended up shutting down very quickly. Yeah. yeah just ugliness but this is a huge area, this student loan crisis. And I know that our listeners are divided, David. Half of people out there go, you know what? I went through school. I had to pay my, to talk about pay your dues. I had to pay my yeah. own way through. And the other right. half are like, I had no idea what the hell I was getting into. Everybody was doing right. it. It was a thing that right. you did. Like, right. well, how would right. you advise a president to come down on this student loan problem? I do have a bias here, but let me say, first of all, I don't know much about these Corinthian schools. They flim flammed a lot of people. I, I think that 560,000 people and the $5.8 billion, whatever the number is, that Biden is supporting, 
that seemed reasonable to me because they were they were gypped, they were cheated. And Corinthians obviously couldn't pay it. And it, what it meant for a lot of people who did pay and, and got nothing out of it, it's a burden they've had to bear in life. And so I'm sympathetic with people who got cheated. But the bigger issue for student debt is what happened to people who went to community colleges or went on to four-year schools and how they pile up debts in order to go. I think it's really, really good that they, as a result of their endeavors, they and went to college, got an education. I think there's a much more productive country because so many people have gone on to school. So that's a good thing. But when it comes to the debt, when it comes to how to pay it back, I, I would feel more comfortable. I think if I were on the receiving end, I'd be prouder if I did some work in exchange for canceling out my debt, as opposed to sort of lining up at the cash window and say, just give me the money. There's a quality about that. If you if you borrow the money, you ought to have some skin in the game to help pay it back. I don't think you can pay. I, don't, I, I appreciate you can't pay all your loans back, and we ought to be helpful on that. But there ought to be some some payment and some some way to earn money. And I personally would link it to national service, and that is we'd like you to give a year back to your community. Find ways you can be helpful in hospitals or in schools. You know, you can be helping to deal with the dropout rate. You can work with kids who are younger. You can do a lot of different things in your community. Give us a year back in your community, and we'll take a year off your college debt or your de- your student debt. You know, give us two years, we'll take two years off. You can work your way out of this in something that will give it will serve your community as opposed to just serving your instant needs. That, that's where I come from. And I realize there's a bias there, but I. There ought not to be something for nothing kind of society. I don't think that's where we should be. I think pride comes when you earn it. Pride comes when you you know you pay your dues. Now, I think if you come out of college with a lot of money you owe, we should make it easy to pay your dues. But there ought to be a little work involved. Hi, I'm David Hirsch, and when I'm not hosting the Dad to Dad podcast for the Special Fathers Network, which is a Dad to Dad mentoring program for fathers raising kids with special needs, I'm stacking Benjamins. Big thanks to David Gergen for talking leadership. Man, I agree, OG. It's hard. It's hard, hard, hard to be a leader in this environment. And yet we need leaders more than ever. We need people to step up and, and lead, whether it's leading your family, leading your business, leading in your local community, leading on a national level. We need some, we, we've got an issue. Just like, uh, you know, money's not taught in schools. It's very tough to teach leadership, but I know some places do and it's super important. What do you think about David Gergen's uh, take on the, this uh, student loan debacle that we're in? We've obviously been talking about student loans here for the past decade, and the problem just continues to get worse, and politicians kind of kick it, kick the can down the road. Gergen advising people says that he would advise any president, Republican or Democrat, to exchange uh, debt cancellation for service. It seems like we already kind of have some of that, but on the front end, right? You can sign up for programs already if you're in certain fields where some of your debt gets canceled. Seems like it would just expand that current program. Yeah. I mean, that kind of exists, right? The the student loan forgiveness program. I think it's a great idea, especially if you can do it like kind of on demand. And what I mean by that is now the program, I think, works a little bit like you need to do 10 years of time and then it's forgiven. But there's a lot of distance between starting that in 10 years. You know, there's just so many different things that will change. I know I have a family member who was kind of on that path and then a career change and a job change and a location change 
kind of took her off that path. You know, that wasn't just wasn't the plan day one, but it's hard to predict 10 years in advance. I like the idea of being able to make it. I've done a year and now here's a year. I mean, you could do the same thing with military service. For example, you could say, you know, you do your military contract and you know, you get this benefit on the back end. It's something I was thinking about as David was talking about that OG is that this may also uh, help with leadership, right? When you get involved, you have to get involved in your community to help pay off your debt. You see things that you didn't see before. And I really struggled with philanthropy early in my career because I didn't feel strongly about a certain cause. And it was only when I got my hands dirty and I got into philanthropy and actually started working at it that I really saw what was going on. It might be the same with service to our country. Like we don't know what leadership vacuum there is out there until we start to get involved in our community. Yeah. Yeah. So happy that David took time for us. Great book, by the way. Loved reading any book on leadership right now is much, much needed. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, Doug, they put what you value first. Understanding particle physics. The cool thing is when you understand particle physics so much, so much of the world opens up to you. And then you realize why uh, Burger King, as an example, flame broils versus uh, fries. Yeah, that's why. I mean, I don't get it at all, but I feel like that's what I need to care about most. Because once I figure that out, I, I like all this fogginess I've been living through my whole life, I feel like it's all going to just come into focus. And you've wasted so much of that time filling out life insurance applications that could have oh been spent digging into that instead. Yeah. Haven Life makes that so much easier. Their application's simple. It's online. You get an instant coverage decision. Prices are affordable. All policies issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual, more than 160-year-old insurer. By the way, just got a note from uh, John who told me what a great experience he had going through Haven Life. And I was super excited to hear that another stacker got this taken care of. So today, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline to our new friend, Ron. Say hi, Ron. Hey, Joe and OG. I have a question. Could you please discuss goals-based investing? Currently, I don't have any goals, but I'm investing. With the goal, I guess, of making more money. Isn't that the goal of every investor, just to make more money? Do you have to invest to go on vacation or to buy a home or to have a car? Why can't I just invest to make more money? I'm confused why I need a goal in order to invest. Does that affect the way I invest if I don't have a goal? Sort of confused, and hopefully you can clear up that confusion. Looking forward to your feedback. Thank you. Goodbye. I love that call. Did you hear crickets in the background? Yes. I was going to say, I don't know, Doug, if I like more just his voice and his tone and the way he asked that question, which is the way everybody's thinking about this question that has that same question. But you're right, the crickets, the outdoors. And then he just, he used silence so well. He'd just end a sentence and just let it sit there and marinate for a second yeah. before he started talking again. I love that call. If only we had a announcer on our show who could let silence just happen. God, I know OG will not shut up. Man. What are you thinking, OG? I think that if you don't have anything going on and you don't have anything that you're planning for, you still have to have a default. And what I mean by that is if you're lucky enough to be able to have more money than you need 
to run your life, food and shelter and whatever you have going on, then if you don't have a specific purpose for the next money, right? Like I'm, I've taken care of myself and I'm also saving for retirement or taking care of myself and I'm sending my kids to school or take care of myself. But now I don't know what else to do or I've done those things and I still have money. Then you have to figure out what the default is going to be. Is the default to increase your consumption? You know, the lifestyle creep is what we call that. Or is the default to just invest the difference? Because to be fair, if you don't have a goal today, that doesn't mean you won't have one in the future. And if you knew in the future what you know now in terms of your you know, savings opportunity, you'd probably be pretty happy that you set money aside for this goal that you didn't know that you might have 20 years from now. I think that, But that I doesn't mean that, that you have to. Yeah. Doesn't that mean, though, it's much more about time frame and respecting the time frame until you think you're going to want the money than the specific, I want a boat? Yeah. No, absolutely. That's what I mean. Like, if you've checked all those boxes, this could be somebody that's kind of new to investing that goes, I don't, I don't know. I can't even, I just started working. How can I think about retirement? I'm not married. I don't want a house. I don't have any kids. Like, I don't mean that you should put your money in a 529 plan because you might have kids someday. That's, you know, you don't want to do that, but you have to decide, are you going to consume all of your excess or are you going to have a default of investing the excess? And you can invest just to have more money. That's perfectly fine because it gives you the flexibility, that margin of safety on the back end that you don't even know that you need yet. But yeah, here's the reason this. Yeah, Doug. Well, we uh, I've listened to little moments of the show over 10 years, Joe. I mean, just little glimpses that stick in my memory. And haven't we talked about, you know, changing your level of aggression with your investing based on your time frame? So if you don't have any specific goal in mind for a thing, it's just, I want more money in the future. Might you be a little bit more aggressive with where you put that money? If you know that you're not going to want it or use it until you know 40 years from now, 30 years from now, or vice versa. Absolutely. I mean, the way that I describe this in my book is that investments have growing seasons. And the reason I think that analogy works so well is that you you plant investments based on when you think you're going to need it. So whether it's for thing A or thing B is irrelevant. But what a lot of investors do is, like we talked about during our headline, Jamie Dimon or Elon Musk start doing some things. If you don't know when you need the money, you start worrying about it. And what do you do? You pull out the corn when it is still just barely, you know, above ground versus waiting until it's time to actually harvest your crop. What? Are you serious? That was the analogy you went with. Pull out your corn. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Okay. What? It's not a thing. I'm not talking about the way you pull out your corn. Yeah, but if you don't have, and, and I think to your point, if you don't have a specific time horizon and a specific goal, then your time horizon is indefinite. So why would you not then just be invested as aggressively as possible right. at all times with that right. money? Yeah. The problem that's going to happen. Which will benefit you, by the way. No, which absolutely will benefit you because then you could ignore the news. Because absolutely. then you could yep. ignore the ups and downs. But Ron, the problem with non-goal-based investing that I've seen and that I think you've seen, OG, is that people do the opposite. When I don't have a goal, I tend to panic more often because if the goal is just to have more money, I'm counting it all the time, Right. You don't count your money when you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting when the deal is done. 
I would also challenge Ron to say that I, I bet that you do have a goal. We just haven't asked enough questions to quantify what that looks like. You know what I mean? Like, I need more money. Okay, why? Because I need more money. Why? Because eventually I don't want to work anymore. Oh. That sounds like financial independence. <laughs> well, Sounds like a goal to me. Right, and digging into that, OG, I mean, think about this. The next question that I would have them would be, almost like minimum viable product for a company. What's the minimum viable age where you would be happy not working? Like what is the, what is, what is that age? Is it 45? Is it 50? Is it like, how aggressive do we want to be? Because if the goal is to have more money now, we're not even talking about investing. We're talking about raising the difference between your income and your expense level. So if you tell me, Hey, I want more money today. Well then, this is a question about asking for a raise. It's not a question about how you invest your portfolio. Right. Good problem to have. It is a good problem to have, Ron, especially when you're clearly walking down a dirt road through the country, it sounds like, doesn't it? <laughs> Completely Wondering does. when to pull out your corn. <laughs> Listen, when you plant a crop, Doug... <laughs> Do you plant the crop on a set day or a set month because it has over centuries been proven to work? No. Question no, mark? You don't. You just do it, you just do it randomly. You just go ahead and you plant it on a random day you, and hope like hell that it comes up. Sooner or later it will though. You could plant it in December, you're planting in January. Mike, you don't know what the weather's gonna do. It might come up. You got to always it, it, be it, investing it your seeds. Well might. So what's your, so what's your highest probability of it actually working out where you're going to get a harvest from that crop? So you're telling me I should invest my money in April. In in what? In, in April? April. I'm t- No, I'm telling you invest it based on when you need the money in the growing season. And then it's only been two um, months the corn can you repeat is repeat the part of the stuff where you said all about the, the things. things. The corn's only a little high. You know what Ron's going to do when he's panicking because he read this this article about a... Wow, Ron's back with this crickets. All I was trying to do was make fun of your corn analogy, and you pulled us right back in. To when are we planting? He's going with it. Thanks for the question, Ron. If you've got a question for us, <laughs> head to stackingbenjamins.com slash voicemail. Ron, hopefully where you work, it's we better than where I work. interjected with that about seven minutes ago. Thanks for the question, Fantastic. Ron. Yes, if you've got a question where... Uh, Speaking of, I have two minutes left. And there it is. OG calls an end to the show. Thank God. And scene. Stackybenjamins.com slash voicemail for your question. Hey, that's going to do it for today. We've got just a couple more things. Because of my... My illness, things have changed around with our tour. Tonight, if you're in Kansas City, join me at Barnes & Noble. You can get more at stackybenjamins.com slash stacked. Thursday, I'll be in Omaha. Saturday, in Des Moines, Iowa. Come join me, stackers, at one of those three locations, stackybenjamins.com slash stacked. And if you're not here to just hang out and talk money, you're here because you need better help in your corner, stackybenjamins.com slash OG is the link to his calendar. OG and his team are taking clients so you can make better financial decisions in the future. All right, Doug, that does it for today. What should we have learned today? Well, Joe, first, listen to David Gergen. Want to lead? 
Get out there. Speak your mind and lead people. Maybe not into a KKK rally. Second, think there's a hurricane coming with your money? Focus on your investment policy statement and you could turn any lemons in your future into lemonade. That's a much better analogy. But let's just, can we just all calm down with the hurricanes and the tornadoes and like the firestorms and earthquakes when we're talking about money? Jeez. I think what we need to do more of, Doug, I think we need more corn. Let's let's go back into corn. We need corn analogies. And how do you pick up? How do you pick out your corn? When do you harvest your corn, Doug? When do you harvest your corn? Let's do that. Let's just make all investment analogies are going to be farming analogies. Because everybody gets those. All right. But you know what the big lesson is, Joe? While the real 1984 was apocalyptic-ish, we're lucky we don't live with a literal big brother. Just Facebook and Apple and TikTok and Amazon and Tinder and Uber. That's way better, right? Thanks to David Gergen, his book, Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made, is available at the White House. I bet it's not available at the White House. I don't think you could, like, go in there on a tour and just say, I'd like, I like a copy of that. Yeah, it was by a guy who worked here a long time ago. No. One of your former employees. Yeah. One of your former... You know how many former employees here have written books? <laughs> there isn't a bookstore large enough for that. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2022, and is created by Joe Salcihai. Our producer is Karen Repine. The show is written by the brilliant Paulette Perhatch, with help from Joe, me, and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. After you listen to our show, check out the 201 Deep Dives, written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. You'll find the 411 on all things money at the 201. Just go to stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. Once we bottle up all this goodness, we ship it to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart. Steve helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to chat with friends about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is our social media coordinator and the room mother in our Facebook group called The Basement. So, say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. Both she and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. To join all The Basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you next time back here at The Stacking Benjamin Show. Not only should you not take advice from these dorks, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, speak with a real financial advisor.
You look like a crossing guard today, Doug. I'm a little cross this morning, Joe. He's a little across. And uh, it's it's orange. Oh, gee. I know you've mentioned yellow. This is Doesn't a bright... it look yellow? It looks very yellow. Mm. It is. Decidedly lemon. No, this is like hunting orange. It's Trust me. It's, Man, the, it's really? the camera. It's my lighting. No. It's orange. Which may actually make it worse if it was I that know. color. But I... I like to stand out in a crowd. What does this color look like to you? What does my watch band look like to you? Orange. Orange. (laughs) So right next to it, well, I can see because of the light. Yellow. That right next to it is yellow. Okay, fine. We all live in a big yellow sweatshirt. (laughs) Big yellow sweatshirt. Yeah. Is yellow what you wear when you're like, don't cross me today? Is that it? Generally in nature, when an animal like this guy, because I am an animal, wears a bright color, it's stay the F away. I'm kind of in that mood this morning. Rawr. 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 Yeah, that's me. So what happened? Woke up. (laughs) Had to deal with you assholes. Still alive. My eyes opened, and I'm like, yep, time to be pissed again. (laughs) This again. Sobered up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. You didn't record the Navy Federal? Okay. We're uh we're we're gonna do Navy Federal again. And then Doug back to you. Doug, when you bought your first tent to go down to the campground, uh how was that mortgage process? Was that difficult? No, super, super easy. They offered financing right at the store, uh, which is, I always take that. Whenever they offer financing at the store, I figure you're not going to get any better than that. So I just grab it right there. And um, it was a couple of years long financing, like maybe 10 or 12 on that tent. Oh, gee, what could go wrong with that? Gotta love it. Better than the criminal experience that I had. <laughs> what, what, was your, what was your experience? You make 140000 right? Wink, wink. Right? Huh? Huh? Here's an interest-only loan for 6%. We'll You'll pay it off eventually. You know, I've, I've heard <laughs> stories like that. I, um, I don't remember ever having that, but what was always the most fungible number in the whole process was the estimate on the house you were buying. Like, we can just make this house worth whatever it needs to be worth to make the numbers work. Not the purchase price? No, uh, it's the, why can't I come up with it? Uh, like none of this needs to go in, but appraisal appraisal. My God, I could oh, not come yeah. up with that word. They'll just make the appraisal work out to be whatever it needs to so that we get the right amount. Magically always is exactly the same price as what you're buying it for. Yeah. Yeah. But isn't that the case? Like if somebody's going to pay that number for that house, doesn't that factor into what the appraisal should be? Like, okay, you just bought it for X amount of money. So isn't that like the appraised, doesn't that factor in? Yeah, anywhere else, it's like, yeah, that baseball player is worth $198 million because that's what the market will bear. Because they paid it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But not in the home buying industry. And then they magically always made it me the number that they needed it to be. That's what, I didn't have anybody say, Doug, you now make $22,000 a year. Thanks for the raise. <laughs> Never got that. Apparently, OG did. By the way, the home buying process, just an aggregate, still just a real pain. 
I mean, you, you think about the fact that you've got all the moving happening. You got to find the right real estate professionals to work with, or you decide to go it alone, which I think is far more dangerous. You got to clean your whole house to show it, OG. Uh, or have somebody to clean it. Meet some new neighbors. Like just the whole the whole process is horrible. Oh no, my new neighbors uh, got a new sound system installed outside yesterday. Oh, perfect. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm holding out hope that it was a babysitter because the music didn't quite exactly match the people that I saw inside. You know, like old late 40s, early 50s family, super old, blasting like Cardi B. Are you Which saying I can that get the, behind? Are you saying that the music carpeting didn't match the music drapes? <laughs> didn't match the homeowner drapes? Throttle back your response on that, OG. No comment. This has got to be after show because this is way too f***ing long for a Navy Federal spot. We were doing a Navy Federal spot? This is supposed to be a 30-second Navy Federal spot. We're, we're like off and running. They're getting their money's worth today. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD, employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.